Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I'm Ayman Mohideen, in for Alex Wagner. And for 27 years, no doubt about it, one news outlet has dramatically reshaped our country's political dialogue. Watch. How delighted I am that we've now reached this moment when we can firmly announce uh, the starting of a Fox News channel. What would be really helpful is if Senator Obama would release primary documents like his birth certificate. This guy either has a birth certificate or he doesn't. This is the, one of the coldest years on record, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. There is no, I don't believe climate change is real. Republicans originally thought that Fox worked for us, uh, and now we're discovering we work for Fox. Will any thinking person ever trust vaccines again? Our elected officials have allowed our country to be invaded. Yeah, I'm going to say it invaded. Your own federal government interfered in the 2020 election and they tipped the scales to the candidate they preferred. That, of course, would be the weak, frail, cognitive mess known as Joey, your president. Let's pretend for a sec that our country had a news media that was interested in bringing you the news, not in lecturing you about your moral inferiority. You're so bad. Or lying to you in transparently obvious ways. January 6th was an insurrection, guys. All right, so those were just a few clips. I mean, whether it was cheerleading the war in Iraq, pushing the idea that there is a cultural war on Christmas, or even claiming that allowing gay marriage would somehow put America on a slippery slope that ended with humans marrying goats, Fox News undoubtedly moved our national dialogue and discourse to the far right, often with a fairly loose relationship to the actual facts of what was happening. And for a very long time, Fox News managed to avoid any sort of accountability for all of this. Now that is changing. She joins representatives Chip Roy and Thomas Massey. All right, sorry to do that to you, Mark. We're just learning now that Fox and Dominion have indeed settled. Fox agreeing to pay Dominion more than $787 million over the network's unsupported claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. The truth is, Fox was a central part of the conservative echo chamber in this country, pushing the idea that the 2020 election had somehow been stolen from President Trump. Not only did Fox end up paying Dominion voting systems, as you just saw there, more than $787 million for peddling those lies, but it is still actively fighting another defamation lawsuit from the electronic voting machine company Smartmatic. And Smartmatic is going after Fox aggressively. The company is asking for $2.7 billion in damages and all of that is really unfolding against the backdrop of the 2024 election, where former President Trump still spinning the lies that got him and Fox in legal trouble in 2020. And that would be a huge mess for Fox to handle un under any circumstances. But today, we actually got the news that the creator of Fox, the 92-year-old Australian media magnate Rupert Murdoch, is finally stepping down. And that leaves his eldest son, Lachlan Murdoch, as the sole executive in charge of the media empire. There are a lot of questions about what this means for Fox 
But the truth is, the question on everyone's mind is, what does this all mean for us as a country? Where do we go from here? Joining us now are two media journalists well known for their thorough and revealing reporting on Rupert Murdoch and his vast media empire. Ben Smith, editor of uh, editor in chief of Semaphore and the author of Traffic. Brian Stelter, Vanity Fair special correspondent and author of the upcoming book, Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the battle for American democracy. Guys, great to see you here. Couldn't think of a better two people to speak to about this. Um, I guess I got to start with the basic question. I'll start with you, Brian. Why now? Why is Rupert Murdoch doing this now, just as we are about to enter this critical period of uh, of our election cycle? Well, he's 92 years old, and he's every bit of 92 years old. He had started to take a back seat several years ago. You can see that in the Dominion legal filings. He acted more like a passenger than the driver of his own car. He acted like a viewer of his network and not the owner. And that was three years ago. I can only imagine it's gotten worse since then. He has tried to elevate his son, Lachlan. He wants Lachlan to be in charge. He also wants family stability. I woke up, read the story this morning, and I thought, you know, this is the season finale of Succession, but not the series finale. It's only the season finale. I've now changed my mind on that. This is not even the season finale. I think we're going to hear more about this in the days to come. I think this might be like the mid-season finale. Okay, okay Rupert, uh, stepping aside at least a little bit, installing Lachlan, promoting Lachlan, that is a big move, but there's going to be more to come, I think, in the next few days or weeks when it comes to what the organization of these companies really is. So to that point, to Brian's point about the stability and what happens next, do you think that there will, even though this is the outward-facing part of Fox and they're trying to, as they have been for months, signal stable, clear succession, could there be potentially inside the company um, a different power dynamic, people who are vying for positions or jockeying for carving out parts of the empire? Could we perhaps see Fox News sold? I mean, the story of Fox really for almost a decade has been has been a power vacuum in which, and I think that's what you saw in those things, with, with R- Rupert Murdoch, you know, kind of kibitzing, but not really running the place. Lachlan, who is the CEO you know, he CEOs this American company from Australia. Mm. And when you ask them about it, they say, well, he, he takes calls at three in the morning, which I think no one believes. Um, and so it's a really quite strange place with fiefdoms and different anchors doing different things. And it's in the context of a very difficult media environment where they, what they are is kind of a small media company by the standards of conglomerates that, that, that dominate American, American, the American media landscape. You know, it, it, it is basically solely in the cable business, which is a, an increasingly tough business. And it's a moment when they, they're going to need to make some fairly dramatic moves to keep the company going. And this is this is a gesture of stability, but it's really hard to see where it leads. Um, speaking of uh, Lachlan Murdoch, what do we know about him? I mean, he, he's definitely visible. I mean, you know, you know him. I guess we recognize him. But what do we actually know about him? What do we know about his managerial style? Ideologically, is he as committed to the Rupert Murdoch, Roger Ailes school of Fox News. Well, he's certainly as conservative as his father. We can hear that in speeches. He was rooting for Donald Trump to win the 2020 election, whereas his father, Rupert, was very, very critical of Trump, even in 2018, 2019, 2020. You know, it's a little bit of a mystery how often feels today about Trump. But you look at his network and they are certainly, uh, although Trump complains about Fox all the time, they are certainly supporting him in a lot of different ways. But I mean, Ben, you've reported on on Lachlan being laid back, being almost like a, you know, a character caretaker CEO. At least that's how critics uh, describe him within the company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one detail that stuck with me is he had a rock climbing wall installed on the studio lot when they still ran the entertainment business. Cause mm. I, cause I, you know, he's very interested in spearfishing. He's not, you know, his father is an obsessive entrepreneur who built a huge empire. That's 
you know, this is his eldest son. That's not the, that, right. That's not what the son wants. And so the question then becomes, will they then spin off the assets? Will Fox News end up in someone else's hands? We know the more liberal son, James, uh, is disgusted by the programming on Fox News. He would like to see change there. But there's no way he can affect that when Rupert Murdoch is still alive. When today, Rupert said, whether we believe him or not, he said he's in robust health. So when you look at the vast media empire that is under the control of Fox and the Murdoch family, and they are still going to be the largest um, shareholders, if you will, as a voting bloc, the family that is, are they still committed to the ideological bent of Fox News? Do you think that there could be like, I mean, we saw Tucker Carlson push to the side, but, and there's still other very prominent, very powerful voices in conservative circles. Any chance with this new change there could be a slight reorientation of Fox. No. no. I mean, and is fact, that ideological or just simply a bottom line decision? Uh, I would say both. Right. You know, but certainly Murdoch's, Murdoch's uh, his retirement letter contained kind of a parting shot at elites. Certainly not him. Um, you, know, <laughs> you don't get much more elite than that. From right? his yeah. vineyard or his yacht. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, and I think they're, you know, they're going to stay where they are. They also, you know, they, they, the parallel company, which, which Lachlan is now taking over, News Corp, controls the Wall Street Journal, right. a number of newspapers around the world. I mean, it's, it's a you know, big, powerful company. And, and journalists have spent their entire careers pre-rating obituaries for Rupert Murdoch. I mean, those things are thousands of words long on the shelf everywhere and could be there a while longer. And the real reckoning really probably doesn't come until the kids fight over his inheritance. Let me come back to the point that you said about Donald Trump and where he fits into kind of like the Fox legacy, certainly yeah. under Rupert Murdoch. So after January the 6th, Rupert Murdoch wanted to make Trump a non-person, that's according to yeah, yeah, according to the, the transcripts of the Dominion lawsuit. The truth is, here we are on the cusp of another election. Donald Trump mo- most likely going to be the Republican nominee, certainly as of now, the still, front runner. Still a person. Still a person. More so of a Rupert, person than ever. Exactly. And Fox is going to have to deal with that as a news organization. Where do you see them interacting? How do you see them interacting with Trump, if anything, differently, well, specifically another, on him? Another debate next week, another debate that's going to be on Fox, another debate that Trump's going to snub. So for the time being, there's a little bit of distance and Trump likes to attack the network whenever he can. But these two sides, they always come back together because I don't like to say this, but I think the reality about Fox these days this is not true 10 years ago, but it's true today is that the people in charge of Fox are the viewers. The audience programs Fox, not Rupert Murdoch, not Lachlan Murdoch. It's the audience. And that feedback loop every day, the more extreme programming, the more rageful, hateful programming, it's almost as if the audience is in charge now because of the leadership vacuum that you're describing where there's nobody at the, at the uh, captainship actually running the ship. There is an effort, um, and I had uh, the New York City Comptroller on my program this past weekend talking about this lawsuit that he, in his capacity as the New York City Comptroller, is bringing against Fox News to try to, as a shareholder through the New York City pensions, shape the coverage of Fox News because they're trying to hold them accountable. As I think about what we're about to go through and what happened four years ago, no accountability for Fox except for what happened after the election. Could we see that type of action Rain in Fox? Could they be held accountable through these types of measures? If it's not the viewers, if it's not Lachlan Murdoch, the shareholders? I mean, I think the only thing that really gave them pause was this massive, massive defamation settlement. Right. And I think they probably will be, you know, narrowly more careful about defaming people. But you can, you know, you can lie about who won the election. That's that's perfectly legal. There's lots of space for them to say crazy stuff. But I think the lawsuits did give them pause and force them to button down their process a little bit. I mean, I, you know, they're, they've been essentially under siege for from all many quarters for a long time. And what, and what is ultimately slowing them down is none of this 
stuff, but just the changing media business, fragmentation, a rise of Republican commentators, whether it's like Ben Shapiro or Megyn Kelly or others who are starting to chip away at what was once almost kind of a monopoly right. on the right. But these lawsuits are not over. They are a present tense issue, as you're yeah. saying. Smartmatic is pending. The shareholder lawsuits are pending. The last thing Rupert Murdoch wants to do is testify or be deposed in yet another lawsuit. He's not going to be able to avoid it now that he's chairman emeritus. He will mm. still be caught up in it. But I think it's important to note we're three years past it. And Fox is still suffering the consequences. And they're going to have to pay a lot more money to settle these suits as well. I think it's also safe to say it's not just Fox that's suffering the consequences. America as a country is suffering the consequences of what Fox is doing to our country with its coverage. Uh, ben Smith, Brian Stelter, gentlemen, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Alan. Uh, we have a lot more to get to tonight. As he prepares to step down from his role as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a riveting new profile of General Mark Milley paints a harrowing picture of just how hard he and other military officials had to work to fight against Donald Trump's authoritarian impulses. We're going to have a lot more on that next. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. All right. So despite the best efforts of Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, the Senate has now officially confirmed President Obama's pick to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Charles Q. Brown. You see him there on your screen. And I got to say, that is actually pretty timely. The term for the current chairman, General Mark Milley, uh, who I should note is also a Trump appointee, expires at the end of this month. And a riveting new profile of General Milley in The Atlantic, published just this morning, reveals General Milley's Herculean effort to safeguard the country against the man who appointed him. In the weeks before the election, Milley was a dervish of activity. He spent much of his time talking with American allies, adversaries, all worried about the stability of the United States. Milley also spoke with lawmakers and media figures in the days leading up to the election, promising that the U.S. military would play no role in its outcome. He would remain a dervish until Inauguration Day, reassuring allies and cautioning adversaries, arguing against escalation with Iran, reminding the Joint Chiefs and the National Military Command Center to be aware of unusual requests or demands and keeping an eye on the activities of the men dispatched by Trump to lead the Pentagon, including Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who was fired. Men who Milley and others suspected were interested in using the military to advance Trump's efforts to remain president. And Jeffrey Goldberg, author of that profile and editor in chief of The Atlantic, 
joins me now. I mean, Jeffrey, I, I think the first word everybody on everybody's mind was, wow. I think we lived in that moment. We saw what happened on January 6th. We had a little bit of inclination, but I think this profile gives us the most in-depth, accurate description of what Mark Milley did. And I want to read a part of, of what you wrote. You said, in the chaotic period before and after the 2020 election, Milley did as much as or more than any other American to defend the constitutional order, to prevent the military from being deployed against the American people and to forestall the eruption of wars with America's nuclear armed adversaries. Along the way, Milley deflected Trump's exhortions to have the U.S. military ignore and even on occasion commit war crimes. And I guess everyone's question this morning is, what happens if this guy comes back? What happens if Donald Trump is reelected? Yeah, that's the question. Um, there's no good answer to because the the feeling is, is that the one thing that militated against Trump destroying the government, right, to put it bluntly, um, was that it was a combination of inexperience and having so-called grown-ups in the room. Remember the first couple of years of the Trump administration? There's Jim Mattis and John Kelly and H.R. McMaster and Rex Tillerson, all these guys. And some of them even had a kind of unofficial pact that, you know, like almost like babysitters, like you're going to stay in Washington, right? So somebody's watching the White House. I mean, it's 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 sounds crazy in retrospect, but there we were. But the, the next time around, it's it's going to be Stephen Miller's all the way down. Yeah. In other words, it's going to be the true believers. Um, it's not going to be the, the people that most of Washington, center left to center right Washington would consider the grownups. Um, and, you know, you, you bring up CQ Brown. It's, it's, it's interesting because this will be the reverse of Millie's experience. CQ Brown is starting under Biden. And obviously that this is not to comment on the right. ideological differences, but, but just the, the behavioral uh, normalcy of the of the Biden White House as yeah. opposed to the Trump White House. So he's starting there. But if Trump wins and there's a you know, I don't think any of us are kidding ourselves when we say that he could win again, um, uh, then you, you, you go into a situation where all of a sudden, and I've been very blunt in this piece, all of a sudden you're a general who's reporting to an unstable president. And that's the, that was the thing about General Milley. He did a lot, yeah. uh, across his career. Um, but, uh, the, the thing that makes him unique as a, as a chairman of the Joint Chiefs is that he's the first of the 20 chairmen we've had since World War II when the position was created um, to ever work for somebody that a lot of people consider to be emotionally, mentally, intellectually unfit, morally unfit to be president. So to that point that you write about this meeting that took place on January the 6th between General Milley and the nuclear commander, the officers in charge yeah, yeah. of the nuclear arsenal, which I think would give all of us now that we read it, this moment of pause. Why do you feel he was compelled to do that? I mean, to, yeah. to the point of Donald Trump's intellectual. Well, the, the, the predicate was so right after January 6th, right after the, the attack on the Capitol, Nancy Pelosi calls us, this is then the speaker, calls General Milley and says, um, he's crazy. I know he's crazy. You know he's crazy. And, and Millie is putting this, you know, remember, these are nonpartisan, apolitical yeah, positions. So he's like, mm -hmm, you know, the Speaker of the House is saying, it, and he's like, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. And he said, I'm worried. This is what Nancy Pelosi says. I'm worried that he's going to launch a nuclear war, you know, in the two weeks that he has left in his presidency. And she's, and he says, it can't happen. This is why it can't happen. These are the systems we have in place, et cetera, et cetera. But then, as he has described it, out of an abundance of caution, he said, let's get everybody together, everybody in the chain of command, everybody who's an expert in this building and at strategic command at Stratcom in Omaha. And 
I just want to talk everybody through all of these procedures. And one of the things that he said to this group, very high level group of generals and admirals, is he said, if anything strange, if you hear anything strange coming out of the White House, remember this happened at the end of the Nixon administration, yeah. by the way, it's not, this is not, this has some precedent. But he said, anything weird, anything strange, you know, just let, let the Joint Chiefs know. Because remember, He's we're technically not in the chain of command. We're a democracy, except when it comes to nuclear policy. Right. The, the president is, and this is the term that's been used, a nuclear monarch. The president can order the use of nuclear weapons. He tells the secretary of defense. Secretary of defense tells the guys out in Omaha. Then they, then they launch. They can't launch if it's an illegal order. And this is where it becomes very fuzzy. And that's why you have the chairman, you know, in that, and not in the chain of command, but in the consultative group right. around nuclear war. And so the only point I would make, and I, I get, uh, I, I think this is like the, the core of it. The, the job, first and foremost, the president is commander in chief. You're in charge of the weapons that could destroy the world. Yeah. And when your chairman of the joint chiefs thinks, you know what, maybe this, uh, maybe this is not the most appropriate person to, to have in charge of this. We're in a and, serious and situation. Thing is like General Milley has to understand that, but also convey to our adversaries who may think this is a good opportunity to strike America or yeah. exploit America's vulnerability, who are also nuclear armed, not to do it. So he was communicating to his counterparts, right. don't look at what is happening in Washington and think we're unstable, even though he probably <laughs> felt. Yeah, well, we are, and, but what he's saying is we're not unstable. Stable. And the reason we're not unstable is because you got guys like me Still and, you got, yeah. and you got other people in the system and uh, all of the generals and admirals are professional and you don't have to worry about yeah. it. Uh, Jeffrey, stick around. I got to talk to you a little bit more. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about this bombshell reporting about Trump and his fear of being a loser. We're going to get into that next. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. My village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. So when General Mark Milley became President Trump's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 2019, the Army held a welcome ceremony for him. And the man you see in the wheelchair there is Army Captain Louis Avila. Captain Avila was wounded in the line of duty and chosen by Milley personally to perform God Bless America at this important ceremony. Here is what happened next, according to Jeffrey Goldberg and his reporting in The Atlantic. After Avila's performance, Trump walked over to congratulate him. But then he said to Milley, with an earshot of several witnesses, why do you bring people like that here? No one wants to see that. The wounded. Never let Avila appear in public again, Trump told Milley. 
Jeffrey Goldberg, author of that profile and editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, is still with me. So I got to say, does this story give us insight into Donald Trump's obsession with not being a loser? He just sees everything and everybody that is not the way he wants them to be as a loser. And, th- and whether or not that was a driving force, why he rejected the results of the 2020 election. Right. Um, I, I don't know. We're not psychiatrists. I don't right. know what causes him to have that reaction to wounded warriors. But we know, for instance, when he wanted, remember, he wanted to have a big military parade yeah, exactly. at one point. He saw it in and, Paris and, and he yeah, was like, I want to and, and he literally told his staff, don't have any of those wounded guys march in the parade. It makes everyone look bad. It makes me look bad. And I, I, I can't explain his fear or loathing uh, for that. It's obviously part of a continuum. We know how he talked about John McCain. Obviously, I like people who aren't shot down. Right. Uh, I, suckers captured. and losers, you know, people who get people who join the military and then get wounded or killed are suckers to him. Obviously, he's this person who who didn't serve. Nobody in his family ever served. And so he has this attitude, which is which is I, I guess you can boil it down to, you know, what's in it for me. And he sees somebody in a, in a wheelchair like that who is a heroic figure, right? And he's like battled back. He five combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, battled back from these horrendous in- injuries. And what, what Donald Trump thinks about is not that guy, but how does it make me feel and, and look? And, and I, I can't, I've been thinking about this question for years, ever since the McCain episodes started. Uh, but it, it, it has to do with like an intense self-absorption for, for starters. And maybe it's some level of shame that he avoided right. the draft. I, I don't know. Again, he's not here. He's not on the couch. We can't, we can't say. What it is, what, what I can say is that it's so far outside the norm right. of political behavior that we, we have no experience with this. Let me read for you another excerpt in your piece. Milley has told friends that he expects that if Trump returns to the White House, the newly elected president will come after him. He'll start throwing people in jail and I'd be on top of the list, he said. He um, seems to be worried about this. How worried is General Mark yeah. Milley? I mean, I mean, this is is this rhetorical or is this a fear that he has? I mean, Donald Trump is a vindictive person. We see that in just the way he goes after uh the special counsel or judges or anybody that abandons him or abandons yeah. his vision of governance. Well, look, it's not just Mark Milley, obviously, if you're John Kelly, if you're H.R. McMaster, exactly. if you're on and on and on and on, right. Bill Barr, Rex Tillerson, Rex Tillerson. I mean, uh, you know, all, Jim Mattis, yeah. it's it's it goes. The list is endless. The list of people he hired and turned on yeah. is, all losers, is all, all the most, uh, you know, the most uh, high achievement people in America, all losers. Um, and, and so, uh, I think that whole coterie of people became a little bit more worried when he said, Trump said, maybe it's a couple months ago, I will be your retribution. Right. Remember that right. quote? Um, it's a revenge-based campaign. Can he go after them? I suppose so. It depends on who I mean, he has. If you has. get to Stephen Miller's the Department of Justice attorney yeah. general. Yeah, I mean, and then, no, this is, this is where the stress on the system comes in, because right. this is not normal, obviously, behavior in a democracy. You don't do that. But this is not... This is not a, a, this was not a normal presidency, and he obviously operates outside the boundaries of norms. Let me ask you really quickly, um, yeah. the Lafayette Square incident, yeah. um, it, one of the lowest points in our country's history, just yeah. for the way that it played out and the fact that General Milley yeah. was dragged into it, was there at the photo op, and it must have weighed heavily on him. How much did that incident, that moment, 
um, factor into General Milley's calculation assessment of a guy yeah. like Donald Trump? This is this is this is Trump's short term thinking coming back to bite him. Right. He, he brings Millie out. Millie and Esper, the defense secretary, both say they were duped into going right. from that moment on. Millie said, I'm not going to be fooled again um, by the political leadership. And so he was on hyper alert the rest of the Trump term for any undemocratic activity, you know, any politicization of the military. So Trump thought it would be good to have the soldier in uniform out there. And it, and, and, and it filled Milley with shame and remorse. And he apologized. Trump, of course, criticized him for apologizing. Yeah. Um, and and that really changed the changed the whole dynamic between the two of them. Uh, it's an incredible piece, Jeffrey, incredible access. Uh, thank you for bringing it to us, because at the end of the day, if you don't want to believe the politicians in this country, at least uh, listen to the generals and the person who commanded all of them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Incredible reporting. Um, and thank you so much. We're going to have a lot more ahead tonight. John Kerry will be joining me live in studio to talk about the biggest threat facing the country and the world, quite frankly. But first, that old Yankee candle. Remember that? That old Yankee candle COVID rumor? Guess what? It is back but it doesn't pass the smell test. That's next. Okay, for less than $17, you can buy this, this sugared cinnamon apple candle that its manufacturer, Yankee Candle, says combines the scrumptious aroma of cinnamon apple with whipped vanilla frosting. But buyer beware, one purchaser took to the internet and wrote, candle does not give off an aroma unless you stand right over it. Very disappointed. According to one review, Yankee Candle used to have very strong scents. The last few years, they've really gone downhill. Bad Yankee Candle reviews seem to be on the rise, just as they were in the winter of 2021 when, guess, I guess you guessed it, COVID was surging. And that led to a hypothesis that bad Yankee Candle reviews might be an unscientific indicator of a COVID spike, since loss of smell was a common symptom of the virus. But COVID symptoms have changed since that last batch of one-star candle reviews. According to new research, loss of smell from COVID is pretty rare now. It actually occurs only in about 3 to 4% of cases. So the best way to tell if you have COVID, if you're out there and watching this, is to actually take a COVID test. And on Monday, you will be able to get four of them free of charge by simply going to the website covidtests.gov. The program shipped more than 755 million free COVID tests to all American households between its launch in January of 2022 and its conclusion just this past May. And now the Biden administration is dedicating $600 million to revive the program, shipping millions of tests to Americans for zero dollars and zero cents. It's not the only thing the government is doing to address a global emergency. U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, John Curry, joins me live here next in studio to talk about another one. You don't always stand up and say in front of people that we're at a moment which is probably one of the most dangerous in all of human existence on the planet. But that is exactly where we are. I believe this fight is winnable. But not if we continue with as much business as usual as we're seeing today. 
Uh, this week, John Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate, issued a fairly dire warning about the situation that we find ourselves uh, in, that is, as a nation and as a planet, a climate that is experiencing disastrously warm temperatures and barreling towards a full-blown crisis. We have just come off the hottest summer ever on record. And scientists say things will only get worse unless the global community heeds Secretary Kerry's warning and does something right now. John Kerry, U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate and the former U.S. Secretary of State under President Obama, joins me now. Uh, Secretary Kerry, I know this has been an exceptionally busy week for you. I, I, I can't even imagine it, but thank you so much for making time for us tonight. I, I want to start, broadly speaking, just kind of the, the big takeaway from this week. And I think a lot of people are wondering what the global community can do to combat climate change. There is a big uh, gap between what the experts are calling for and what the world is doing. Well, actually, the world has, uh, has stepped up with promises. And at the last meetings of the global community in Glasgow and in Sharm el-Sheikh, they've made promises that would make an enormous difference in pulling us back from the break. The problem is not everybody's fulfilling those commitments. So the push now is to raise ambition, but in an accountable way and get the job done. The important thing is we can win this battle. We absolutely can. But we have to deploy more technology, pay more attention and live up to our promises. Um, I have spent this week speaking to officials as well on the sidelines of the U.N. Um, one theme that I have heard over and over again is the gap between the global south and the global north. Right. Um, you speak to representatives and diplomats from the global south and they point the finger at the global north and say it was you that contributed to where we are today and it's you that have to pay up. And so they're talking about financing to try to set up some kind of financing. How do you close that gap? I mean, are we even well, close to closing that gap? Well, we have we have plans to close the gap. And I think there is a huge focus by uh, even the finance community. I met today with asset owners with, who manage about seven, eleven trillion dollars worth of uh, assets and property. And they're really captured by this. They, they know that their life is going to be affected and jobs will be affected. The business community will be affected. Insurance companies will be affected. I mean, there's a massive cascade right. downstream here. But more and more people are honestly waking up to this. Amen. And I believe there's a transformation right now. This could be a really impactful meeting of the world in, in Dubai, in the UAE, mm -hmm. in December. And, and it could really make the difference here. We're on the brink of so many new technologies that are breaking through. People are seeing fusion, for instance, making leaps and bounds of progress. We have new battery storage and batteries uh, coming online. We have green hydrogen being developed. I mean, there is a lot happening and a lot of money moving into those investments to make a difference. President Biden has done an extraordinary job, frankly, of opening up uh, opportunities that uh, are unprecedented. The the Inflation Reduction Act, which has encouraged amazing amount of investment in our country, new jobs and and a whole set of initiatives that are changing what the world is doing. The, the First Movers Coalition, where largest companies in America are making commitments to buy green products now in order to create a demand signal where you have a uh, shipping industry building carbon free ships. You have uh, uh, the, the uh, first movers, uh, which is setting an example for uh, some of the largest uh, corporations in the world, are setting an example for how you can begin 
to transform more rapidly. And, and you know, there's the uh, Major Economies Forum, which has produced a whole new, through, through President Biden, holding a summit at the White House, which has now uh, created a transformation in what the targets are. So I, I really believe uh, that uh, we're in a place to win the battle if in the next months we make the decisions we have to. Primary among them, we've got to reduce emissions. And we have to primarily guarantee that we're not going to permit new coal-fired power plants anywhere in the world. And, and I think we're on track to begin to take that seriously. In, in terms of reducing emissions, you have countries, and I was interviewing the Iraqi prime minister today, who's yeah. desperate to get his country's economy back on track after 20 years of war. But at the same time, a lot of it goes through fossil fuel. How do you convince a leader like the Iraqi prime minister and other countries around the world who desperately seek economic uh, progress through fossil fuel, which is the largest part of their economy, to not do that because the well, rest it of is, us... It is today, but yeah. they have to buy into this transformation. They have to recognize what the UAE... The UAE has a national oil company, Adnoc, and the UAE is an oil-producing, gas-producing country. But 15 or 20 years ago, the UAE saw the future and made the decision. They have to begin to diversify. What we need is the old energy companies need to begin to become new energy companies. And that means to transform somewhat. A lot of them are, some of them aren't. Others are choosing to do the things they know how to do, which is to perhaps capture emissions or uh, extract and, and put back into the earth to bury it forever. But the marketplace is going to decide who the winners and who the losers are here. The key is that, that a big energy oil and gas company ought to just transform into an energy company. And many are trying to do that right now. They're chasing green hydrogen. They're working on uh, uh, you know, new uh, products that are capable of providing the marketplace with a whole set of different choices. Electric vehicles are coming online at record pace. The fact is that the demand for fossil fuels is actually going down to some degree now and will be markedly by the end of this decade. So that change, uh, good CEOs are realizing the future is going to be defined in a clean energy economy, and they're making that commitment. Uh, I want to share with you just the assessment of the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. And, and it's not to get you to comment specifically on his comments, but he's giving an assessment from the vantage point that he sits in. And, and certainly anyone who's watching this would say you feel, as, you, as we played in the soundbite, are fairly optimistic that something can be done. But, you know, he had a meeting this week. Um, it was a high-level meeting, convened. He only allowed remarks by people he felt... Um, we're taking climate action seriously. China and the United States were not asked to speak at that event. Well, the reason is that they said that only leaders could speak and President Biden couldn't be there. And uh, I was there, right. but I'm not I'm not the leader of the yeah, country. Yeah. So uh, we live by the rules and the rules were that. But the United States under President Biden has been leading in so many different ways. I mentioned the First Movers Coalition. I, I mentioned the uh, major economies forum, which summoned the 20 largest economies in the world to the White House virtually yeah. for a summit that produced uh, changes in commitments from people all around the world. We raised the ambition. The United States has the Inflation Reduction Act, which is putting more than, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars into the new technologies. The United States has been helping other countries in many different ways. 
I, I think that uh, the United States can be very proud of the leadership that we have been offering on this. We have a shipping challenge. We now have the largest shippers in the world as a result of our challenge that are transforming their power plants on those ships into carbon-free power plants. We have uh, sustainable aviation fuel being worked on. We have, uh, I mean, there's so many different things. It's really, it's exciting, but people don't feel all of those changes yet. But the United States uh, and President Biden have been really out front creating these new initiatives. Uh, one of them is new nuclear. Right. We have a whole new set of small modular nuclear plants that are being designed. And we have a methane pledge. Methane is responsible for 50% of the warming of the planet, but only 2% of the funding of climate goes to methane. We're now changed that. We started and worked with the EU, put together a methane pledge. We have 155 countries now that have pledged to move forward on methane. Methane is 20 to 80 times more damaging than CO2. And, the old, and it's the quickest way in which we can reduce the Earth's temperature increase. So those are things that President Biden has set in motion. And I think you know, it's a shame that they couldn't allow someone other than the president to speak. Uh, but on the other hand, those are the rules and we live by them. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned COP28 taking place in the United Arab Emirates. Um, it, it has received a little bit of scrutiny uh, that it is being held there. But um, I want to get your thoughts on what a successful COP28 means for you. What, if you walked away from COP28 as a successful mission, what would it look like? Well, there are three things that are automatic that are going to happen at this COP. One is the uh, uh, there's a automatic announcement of the stock take, which is a sort of report card of right. where we are. We want that to be honest, to be clear about the gaps and to set something of a path as we go forward. In addition, there's an adaptation report that will come out, which will help define the road to adapting for countries that need to adapt and can. And President Biden has put a $12 billion commitment on the table in order to help these countries be able to transform and adapt. And then uh, in addition to that, uh, we have a whole series of, uh, uh, of initiatives that are going to be taken by countries around the world. If those are, are defined well enough and we work at it, uh, that's going to add to our ability to be able to reduce the emissions of the planet. We have to raise ambition at this COP so that we're doing what's necessary to win the battle, and we have to solve the problem of finance. We must come up with a way to, to deploy the trillions of dollars that are needed for this transformation. The, the, the UN estimates that we need to have about, uh, you know, two and a half to four and a half trillion dollars a year for the next 30 years. We have that money in the private sector, but the private sector is restrained against investing, partly just out of concern, not confident. So we're learning how to de-risk that money. And if we can find a number of mechanisms come to fruition at the COP in Dubai, we will be in a position to be able to leap forward in deploying money and we'll win the battle. I believe that very I, deeply. I, I got to say, I, I appreciate your optimism and I just need to find <laughs> out what, however you get them because we certainly need it. I spent this whole week and I think a lot of people who are on the sidelines of the UN, they want to be optimistic, but then they're also seeing some well, there's of these a divisions. Lot of reason. Honestly, there is a lot of reason to be optimistic. For there sure. are incredible new things happening in technologies, better battery storage, uh, hydrogen, electrolyzer. I mean, we're on the brink of, a, of yeah. an entire revolution and we will have a low carbon, no carbon economy 
The only issue is, will we do it in time to avoid the worst of the crisis? And hopefully there are the, the, some of the politicians in this country who are climate change deniers don't, don't get into the decision-making uh, uh, seats, if you will. About well, I'm not allowed to comment. No, 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 that. that's, why, that's why I made the comment. I didn't let you say it. Uh, uh, John Kerry, greatly appreciate Thank it, sir. You Thank you so much. much for your time. I appreciate Great your time. Great to be with you. Uh, that is our show for tonight. I'm Ayman Mohideen in for Alex Wagner. Make sure to catch me every Saturday and Sundays at 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC.